Hey, we love Burger King grilled dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and really appreciate having you with us for this episode. Have a really strong show with three different guests. First up is Dan Hanner of Real GM. We talk college hoops. Then I have Jordan Ramirez of Warriors World, and we talk about the Warriors hashtag full squad meme movement that's been going on. He's at the epicenter of it. Wanted to have him on about that. And also have Ethan Sherwood-Strauss of ESPN to talk about various NBA issues. One little disclaimer at the front, all of these were recorded on Monday and Tuesday, and there are some fair amount of Warriors talk in everything, and the trade that happened where they gave up Tony Douglas and picked up Jordan Crawford and Marshawn Brooks happened after all of these were recorded. So that's not a part of this, however I give my thoughts at the end of everybody after Ethan, so if you want to hear that you can hear it then, or you can read my grading the deal piece which is on Real GM. But first up is Dan Hanner. He's a college basketball writer and amazing mind with all of that. We talk about the freshmen that are doing well. He wrote an excellent piece this week about the RSCI top 100 of this freshman class and how they're doing. And then he wrote another piece on the greater scope of college basketball. So we get into a variety of other teams from Wisconsin to Oklahoma State and pretty much everybody in between. Conversation runs about 30 minutes. Really enjoyed doing it. Hope you enjoy it as well. Thank you so much to Dan for coming on again. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be on. So we're, I'd, I'd say, about midway through the basketball season. Does that sound about right? Yeah, you know, two and a half months in, yeah, it's really just about mid-season. So good time to look back, look ahead, talk about a lot of stuff. You have two recent pieces that you did for Real GM. One focused on the freshman class after two months, and then another one was kind of a more general take. And I was wondering if you wanted to walk through the freshman one first. Sure. I think this year in particular, we've had so much hype on the top 10 recruits in particular. Well, maybe let's say the top three, four, uh, Andrew Wiggins, Julius Randall, Javari Parker. Many words have been written about these guys. And I think we all realize how talented and special this year's class is. But I, I thought it was interesting to try and look a little bit deeper just because, you know, there are a number of players who are making an impact who aren't necessarily considered to be at the top of the list uh, in the preseason. Um, players like UCLA's Zach Levine, who has been scoring at an incredible Incredible rate, despite being lower in the rankings. Players like Missouri's Jonathan Williams III, who has been a bit of a quiet scorer, but on a team with a bunch of guards that can score like crazy, he's been grabbing offensive rebounds, just been a nightmare on the boards. And, and really providing that balance for the team. And, and so, you know, the, uh, last week I, I basically looked at those top 100 players and looked at some of their stats just across the board to see how more than just top guys have been 
performing this year. To me, the guy that really stood out in a positive way was Tyler Ennis. I haven't admittedly haven't watched a ton of Syracuse yet this year, but just even from a statistical perspective, what he's been doing is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I, I cannot remember a point guard who is a freshman has, has been so good at not turning the ball over and still been a creator for his team. I mean, he, he really sets his teammates up, but he just seems to have an unbelievable ability to hang on to the ball. I mean, that's just not supposed to happen when you're, you're fresh out of high school. The other thing about Ennis' play that's so important is, you know, we, I think we talked in the preseason, Syracuse does not really have a good backup point guard option. Um, Michael Gabinijay, the, the Duke transfer, probably would be a wing on a lot of teams. He's been playing the backup point guard role for Syracuse. But, I mean, basically Ennis has to play 37, 38 minutes against all the very good teams on their schedule. And for a freshman to do that and, and not turn the ball over and not make mistakes is just out of this world. And considering how it's unprecedented, it seems like there isn't any way that he can keep it up. But at the same point, it was totally unexpected that he'd do this well beforehand. So who really knows? That's exactly right. On the one hand, you know, it's, it's, it's no guarantee that if you've, you know, done stuff to this point in the season that you'll continue. But on the other hand, you're, you're one of the most dominant players or one of the most dominant teams to this point. Why should we, you know, think that that's not the case? I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote a little bit a little while ago about how a lot of people remain skeptical of Wisconsin. And CBS's Doug Gottlieb had another piece today where he was saying, you know, Wisconsin isn't an elite team. He's not really convinced that they've reached, you know, that sort of, maybe Final Four caliber level, and I I can certainly understand that. I can certainly understand skepticism of any team at this point in the season when there's still a lot of big games to come. But, you know, you look at Wisconsin, and because Frank Kaminsky and Sam Decker, their two forwards, are such incredible shooters, they can put five very good three-point shooters on the floor at one time, and that just makes for an incredible offense. And they amazingly do such a good job of not fouling defensively, just force teams to make shots, that they, they really hold their own on the defensive end as well. And, and sure, it's easy to look at Wisconsin's jersey numbers and say, how is this team ending up in the top three? How are they number two in some people's size? You know, but at the same time, if you're dominating basketball games this way, who's to say you can't make the Final Four? Last year, Michigan had a very similar jump-shooting, perimeter-oriented team. It wasn't until the tournament, really, that Mitch McGarry broke out. And, uh, you know, Wisconsin could be very similar in terms of having a bunch of jump shooters and playing solid defense without fouling. That was really Michigan's formula last season. That strategy seems to work much more naturally with the college game because of the shorter three-point line, because that takes a little bit of the variance out of the shot, though obviously there still is some. But it is very interesting for a single elimination tournament. No, I mean, <laughs> this is always one of the uh, – Bo Ryan – I mean, Wisconsin went to the Final Four just before Bo Ryan showed up. But many times people have said he's the best coach that hasn't made the Final Four in the last decade. But, you know, is, is there some weakness in what they do? Is it they play too slow with tempo, so they always open the possibility that somebody can upset them in an early tournament game, things of that nature. And, and look, you're, I mean, you know, jump shooting is always a risky strategy, but – in a one-and-done format, pretty much every strategy is a risky format in a one-and-done. I mean, uh, you know, even if you are a very, very elite team, the reality is, you know, you probably don't have more than a 75% chance of beating other good NCAA tournament teams because these are also good teams. So uh, one-and-done one makes pretty much any strategy risky at, at the college game. It's an excellent point. One of the things, just reading reading the top end of the article that was just so jarring to me, was remembering that Kentucky has five of the top ten prospects, according to RSCI, and six of the top 20. 
And that's just how ludicrously young that team is. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting because I looked at this a little bit in, in December in, in some of my columns. I think the tendency we have is to say a team like Kentucky, a team like Kansas, because they're so young, you know, th- it must be the case that they're, they're guaranteed to get better later in the year. Well, that isn't necessarily the case. Young teams can also struggle as the year goes on as well. They start to play conference road games for the first time, which is a, a much more you know, difficult environment to, to play well. They get in the NCAA spotlight for the first time in the tournament. They might not handle that pressure well. So certainly, you know, looking at the data, it doesn't necessarily say that young teams will turn things around and fix things. But it's not to say that uh, when you still look at Kentucky and Kansas's uh, talent, and Kansas has already started to do well in the Big 12, that they, at, well, and Kentucky has started to win SEC games, that, that both these teams you know, won't uh, still turn things around and, and be huge factors in March. But, uh, yeah, I mean, as you said, the, an incredibly young Kentucky team, when they, when they can leave you know, someone like Dakari Johnson, who was certainly in some of the preseason recruiting ranks a top-ten player, where they can basically leave him on the bench. You, you have a top-ten guy that you aren't even playing. That's a lot of talent and a lot of depth. Well, yeah, and when you think about, you know, that they're young, you're thinking about a guy who's pushing Dakari down is Willie Cauley-Stein, who was similarly ranked last year. It's not like he's this senior and who's just a, a grizzled veteran who knows the ropes. He was in the same situation one year ago. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, Will Cauley-Stein is really an interesting – I've been wondering, you know, how people are going to feel about his draft stock at the end of this year. I think in a lot of years, you know, he probably would be considered relatively high. But, I mean, this year's draft has so many very talented players that, I, you know, I, do, I, I have started to wonder, as well as he's playing for Kentucky, if there might be a chance that he will stick around another year. It, it'll be interesting to see. It will be. And a lot of times on something like that, I think he could benefit from coming out early in the sense that he could go to a team that would be more patient with him and put him in a in a role without the expectations. And particularly a guy like him for me, who he already has some pretty solid defensive tools. And if you could give him more time to develop or give him better surrounding talent offensively, that that could do wonders for his eventual development. Exactly. I mean, uh, maybe the Spurs are the wrong example since they're always finding diamonds in the rough at the end of the draft. But, you know, you're exactly right. You find somebody who's a playoff-bound team that could use another defensive-minded, you know, interior player. That seems to be a scarce resource in all eras. So, yeah, certainly it could be a good fit for him at the end of the draft for someone. And the the guy that I've compared him to in my own mind, as somebody who liked DeAndre Jordan as a prospect more than his draft stock, is that you saw with a guy like that, and that he it takes a little while. You know, if somebody's really raw and it's more about their ceiling, it's going to take time. And there's a physical adjustment and there's a mental adjustment too. And sometimes going to the right system can accelerate that process and also take some of the risk out. And I think we saw with DeAndre that. There is a risk to that that you might not even be able to assess in their first contract. The example I always use of this, and I'm, I'm not really going to talk about the NBA, but is, is the Chicago Bulls when they tried to totally blow things up and rebuild with Tyson Chandler and that sort of young core that they had where they had four or five young guys on the team at the same time who were incredibly talented, but there was no system. There was nobody who had any idea what they were doing. And you, you ended up with a bunch of guys who ended up being very talented, having good, long NBA careers, but they just you, you couldn't in that first contract evaluate that they were good players because there was no system in place. Using the numbers or using your own eye test, do you have a real sense of what Noah Vonley is going to be as a, as a player either for the rest of his college career or as a pro? 
Von Lays, it's been an interesting year. It's, he, his, certainly his rebounding numbers have been off the page, but Indiana's schedule has been particularly weak, at least in the non-conference uh, portion. They, they really were playing a lot of Little Sisters of the Poor in terms of who they played. And, you know, for a while he, was, he had a double-double in every game. You know, whether that is going to play out, I think we do need to see more of him against Big Ten competition to, to fully evaluate what his game will be. But it, it's also a little bit of a difficult situation, which I think a lot of talented players will face in that Indiana doesn't have a lot of shooters this year. I mean, it's kind of amazing. This is the beauty and the, the pain of college basketball. The teams can change spots so amazingly from one season to the next. But last year, Indiana was one of the lights-out shooting teams. They had three or four guys who could shoot over 40% from three, just kill you anytime you left them open for a second. This year, Indiana can't buy a three-pointer to save their lives. They don't have any natural shooters. And so, you know, Von Ley is going to be double-teamed in the post on just about every single possession this season. You know, I do still want to see how he adjusts to that and how he plays in, in Big Ten play, but uh, it's going to be really hard to evaluate his game fully this year. Uh, I mean, I think if he sticks around next year, we might get a better sense, but he, he's going to remain a mystery. Are there any guys that we haven't already talked about that when doing that exercise that really surprised you in either a positive or negative way? One of the things that folks had mentioned uh, a little bit, but which until I sort of looked at the numbers myself, hadn't had noticed is, is how well Josh Hart is playing for Villanova. Villanova was not picked as a preseason top 25 team. They're now suddenly the clear Big East favorites. And, you know, having a freshman who can be super efficient, come off the bench and just score like crazy, and, and that's what Josh Hart has done, really is the kind of thing that can, can push you from being yeah, maybe a borderline NCAA tournament team to a team that can stay in the top 25 all season long. And uh, his development was definitely a, a surprise to me. And that shows how, you know, the scouting and the analysis, I think that generally uh, on the aggregate they do a good job, but there are always guys who come through. I think Levine is another example of that, though his system has helped him quite a bit. But you, you see those guys, and that, I think that's in a lot of ways the beauty of college basketball is that it allows guys to shine even early on if they if they get the right chance. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it's amazing to me in looking at these numbers how often it really is, you know, it's a function of opportunity as much as it is about ability. And, you know, I always wonder why these high school kids commit so early. I mean, maybe it's because you do fall in love with a school and an environment and you want to be there. But the folks who wait until the last minute to make their decision – a lot of times I really think that is the best idea because if you have that opportunity that you can wait, that you're talented enough, you know, find out what the system is going to be like. Find out who is going to be back. Find out where you're exactly going to fit in and what your role is going to be because it, it can make a huge difference in how successful you are in year one. Exactly. And I think that where you draw that line is if it's somebody who you can adjust the system around, like let's say a Jabari Parker or um, Okafor next year, versus somebody who's more in kind of, let's say, even the high 20s, who if they want to go to a glamour program, they could be a useful piece, but they're not going to be somebody who everything's built around. So they need to kind of assess that situation, especially if they have a clock in their head of when, if the pros are an option of when they would want to do that. Right, because the unfortunate thing, and, you know, I, I was watching some of the Georgetown game this weekend, and, you know, they were, they were interviewing Roy Hibbert and, you know, talking to him about how he really stuck around for four years. Well, nobody considered him to be a elite player when he went to college. He He's put in the hard work and, and built himself into a star player. But the rarity of that four-year player in college basketball who makes it into the NBA, I mean, NBA teams really value potential to a high degree. They they like ceiling. And that's, I mean, that's to me one of the reasons – 
not everybody views Jabari Parker as the top player in this draft. If you if you had to play a game and win a game tomorrow, I think we'd all pick Jabari Parker as the first pick in the draft. He can score in so many ways, and as much as Duke has struggled defensively, I think part of the reason is he's been playing out of position defensively. I don't think he's necessarily a player who can't defend his position. But, you know, you look at guys like Joel Embiid, you look at players like Andrew Wiggins, and their ceiling might be a little bit higher. And that, that potential is so enticing to us. If you're going to college and you think you're going to go to the NBA, you, you do have to have that clock in your mind. By the end of my sophomore or my junior year, I've got to be in that process because if you stick around for four years, there just aren't that many four-year guys who end up in the beginning of the draft. On Jabari Parker, the thing that I've noticed with him is that I still feel like he has trouble scoring as reliably, obviously he still does fine, against NBA-quality athletes. Have you noticed the same thing, or do you disagree? Well, I, I mean, I think a bit of, and I'm surprised it took this long for teams to do this, but you know, teams in recent games have really been just double-teaming him, throwing multiple guys at him at all times. I mean, definitely you're going to throw your best defender on him because he is so important to what uh, Duke does. But, I mean, in terms of having an, an outside game and an inside game and just sort of a versatile all-around ability to score from different areas on the court, I don't think you see anyone in college basketball who has really that diverse skill set right now. I, I mean, obviously, you, if you have a NBA-caliber defender that you can put on him, you're going to be in much better shape than uh, if you're Boston College with all its difficulty defending anybody where they can't, you know, they don't seem to have any defensive prowess this season. You know, they, there's a difference there, but I'm not worried about his game. <laughs> That's totally fair. In the piece that you wrote that came out on Monday today when we're recording this, you talked to, has had a stretch that I thought was particularly interesting on players who shoot threes who should not shoot either as many threes as they do or maybe not any at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I was surprised, actually, and, and part of this was I chose sort of a high cutoff with 40 three-point attempts. Uh, there are plenty of other guys who maybe have 20 three-point attempts on the season who also shouldn't be shooting threes. But I was surprised in looking at this list how many guys, it really did appear to be sort of a slump from last year. A lot of the names on the list are not necessarily guys who I associated as being permanently bad three-point shooters, but there are some who, some players like, like T.J. Warren, who, whose game still is a bit of a mystery to me because, you know, he's played in, in such odd situations. Last year, NC State was loaded with supposedly NBA talent. Everybody went to their games, but Warren kind of played an odd role. He didn't really, he, you know, he played a lot of garbage minutes. He scored like crazy, but, you know, he wasn't necessarily that great a defender, and he, he didn't get to play, you know, meaningfully against starters on the other team as sort of the go-to guy. Now, this year, on the other hand, NC State is devastated with talent losses. T.J. Warren is the man, but as a result, he's putting up, you know, terrible shots left and right. He's, you know, he's taking a bunch of bad threes because the team needs him to score. So this year he's a 22% three-point shooter. Whether that's a permanent, you know, fixture of his game is sort of hard to say, but certainly it was interesting, the list I sort of generated there of, of players who, who haven't been making threes at, at the rate you would expect. Another concerning one for me on that list was the last guy on the list, Aaron Harrison, just because that would be such a nice thing for him to have in his game. And if that cannot develop, it does raise at least one red flag in terms of his ceiling, if we're going to go back to ceiling as an NBA player. No, I mean, you know, I have long felt that both college evaluators and pro evaluators have overlooked how easy – there tends to be this feeling like, well, I can teach someone to shoot. Well – Sometimes you can teach someone to shoot, but a lot of times shooting comes down to how dedicated that person is to just stand there in the gym and take those shots 
hour after hour, day after day, until it becomes a rhythm, uh, just a, an automatic thing. And I do think it is a red flag when players like Aaron Harrison are, you know, he's shooting 27% right now. I, I think people, scouts, tend to over, overlook that and say, well, he's got so many other skills, he's got size. I, I, this shot will come around. I can teach that. Well, sometimes you can, but I think a lot of times that's a lot harder than you think. The guy who taught me that, and hopefully he can improve on it because I love him as a player, is Michael Kidd-Gilchrist. Because I was somebody who said, oh, his jump shot, you know, it'll come around. He's such a great defender. And he still could get there, obviously. He seems like, from when I've interacted with him, like a really good kid, hard worker, and all that kind of stuff. But if you can't develop that, that red flag makes you almost unusable in many NBA circles now if you're playing the one through four. Right. No, the NBA has become a league where driving and, and shooting are so important that you and you need to have both those skills. So, uh, yeah, it, whether you can teach it or not, uh, especially in a draft like we're going to have this year, hopefully teams will be taking players who, who have polished skills because there's no reason to take a chance when you have talent like we do in this year's class. So as as you started out your most recent piece, we're not going to talk about the tournament at all, but I was I did want to talk about what teams have impressed you the most so far. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's finally the, the, the margin of victory numbers are starting to come around to match what people have said uh, in terms of Arizona, Wisconsin, and Syracuse are all undefeated, and they, they really are playing like uh, dominant squads. But, I mean, I think the team to me that I have been so impressed and you know, we'll see how they do tonight against Kansas. Probably by the time people listen to this, uh, I'll either, or it'll either seem like they're doing great or they're doing poorly, is Iowa State. I, you know, Fred Hoiberg... The last two years, he really built things with transfers, bringing them in, which is, is a when you can get the chemistry in a short amount of time, it, it's a great thing. But but this year, his the job he has done has been even more impressive to me because he didn't bring in as many transfers. He uh, he has a, a JUCO uh, guy in Dustin Hogue who is a physical force. He's dependent on freshmen Morris and Thomas, and he's really managed to build a rotation from scratch into uh, you know a top 15 team, a team that really has a legitimate shot to win the Big 12 title. And DeAndre Kane is obviously a large part of it. He was another transfer, and uh, his, his injury maybe actually leads me to a segue into, I think it might be just about time. I'm hoping for next week, but possibly the week after that, to uh, release my first injury splits of the season. Because one of the things in evaluating these teams, good or bad, is trying to figure out, you know, when healthy who is the best? And we watch these NFL playoff games, and it sort of becomes a war of attrition at some point. Who still has healthy players left at this point of the season allows teams to advance to the Super Bowl. But, you know, in college basketball, health is, is sort of one of those underrated factors. And, and, and one of my big things, which, as I say, maybe next week or the week after, is, is to really look and see how teams adapt with or without star players. So Notre Dame recently lost Jerry Grant, who, you know, it'd be – and, and they did get a big win against Duke, but then followed that up with two uh, sort of disappointing ACC losses. So, you know, looking at how Notre Dame has performed without Grants, looking at how Michigan has performed without Mitch McGarry, following all these sort of injuries is, uh, you know, going to be one of the key things that uh, I'm going to want to talk about here going forward. And I'm sure that'll be a really interesting piece. And as you said, that's an important part in terms of kind of evaluating where things are going to go because – you see it in, in, in pretty much every sport but baseball now in that you have to figure that out, both whether they're going to have a guy or whether they're not, because the differences, particularly in college basketball, where the continuity and depth are kind of a little bit different than the professional sports, it can play such a huge role in the kind of the arc of a team. 
and it's amazing how coaches, you know, manage these situations differently. Um, I mean, the one team that I'm, I'm most fascinated to talk about starting next week is probably the Washington Huskies, who lost two or three guys in the preseason in their front court rotation. And it's one of those things where I always like to say, if, if you got the news in July, you might be in good shape. But when you get the news in, at the beginning of November and you've already had a bunch of practices with those guys, it really sets you back in terms of you just haven't even practiced with your new lineup and your new rotation. And, and what you saw with Washington is they lost these front court guys and their defense was just hideous in the beginning months of the season, which is a little bit of a surprise because Washington actually has some talent. I mean, C.J. Wilcox is a talented player. I still like Nigel Williams-Goss, the, the freshman point guard that they have. They, they have some good players, but without playing any defense because of their front court lack of depth, Washington just looked horrible in the non-conference schedule. Well, all of a sudden, Desmond Simmons is back. There's a little bit more depth in that front court rotation. Meanwhile, the team is used to playing with four guards a little bit more. And all of a sudden, Washington's defense is back to being, you know, uh, competitive. And they're winning games against very good Pac-12 teams. And, and, and like you say, it's the arc of the season and, and how important those injuries are to, to where a team will end up. I was just thinking about, obviously not tournament talk, how interesting conceptually – Arizona facing off against Wisconsin would be just in terms of how those styles would mesh and everything else. Yeah. First off, give Sean Miller credit. I didn't know if he would be able to do this. He has gotten his team to buy in defensively and turn into one of the better defensive teams in the country. He had brought in a few talented classes before, but this is the first time that he's really got them to say, you know what, we're going to win. We're going for a national title, and we're going to play the defense we need in order to get there. And part of that really has been Arizona's incredibly short rotation. I mean, they've really gone with seven, sometimes, you know, sometimes eight guys, but, but everybody sort of knows their role, has that great chemistry with where to be on the court. And, and I think that athleticism is something that a team like Wisconsin would have trouble matching up it against. But as we said at the beginning, you know, when Wisconsin can put five shooters on the floor, have two forwards who can knock down threes and score in the paint, that's a really hard defensive matchup for anyone. If, you, if you've got five guys who can shoot threes, you can probably beat anybody in the country. So I, that would be an absolutely fascinating game at this point. Going more deeply into the conference schedule, what are you most looking forward to as we, let's say, as we move through late January and February? Yeah, what, what am I most looking forward to? I mean, oddly, I, I think the game, even though it's lost some of its luster in some ways by how Duke has struggled, I, I think that the Duke versus Syracuse game continues to be sort of on everybody's tip of their tongue as something you, know, you just want to see as a new ACC matchup and see if Duke shooters, how they can fare against Syracuse's zone. But I think more than anything, it's honestly watching just how the Big 12 race uh, unfolds. I, I think the Big 12 is much deeper than people thought this year. Kansas State, certainly with Marcus Foster coming around, has certainly proven to be better than people thought they were going to be. Oklahoma, with Ryan Spangler being a physical force, has been better than people thought they were going to be. And, you know, the Big 12, you know, Texas Tech and TCU are still gimme games, but everybody else, that you know, this is a – a top to bottom, a very, very physical, tough league. And just watching whether Kansas can win, you know, that 10th league title in a row is, is going to be fascinating. And it's also interesting because, to me, this Kansas team feels so different from most Kansas teams. That might just be the, the kind of interesting talents that they have on it. But when I've watched them, I don't think of necessarily those same Kansas teams under self that I've gotten so familiar with. No, no, absolutely. I mean, different and yet it, it is similar. I mean, Kansas has had teams where they have lost, 
you know, basically everybody the NBA draft before. I, I mean, I certainly, I think after their national title, but it's happened two or three times under Bill Self where they've really, the, the cupboard has been, you know, emptied. They've had to start from scratch. But what they've usually had in those circumstances is somebody who was maybe an underutilized sophomore who they could make into a team leader and really build around that guy. I mean, I remember the Morris twins. They were kind of on the bench quite a bit. And then when all these other guys left, they were just ready to be dominant college basketball players. But Kansas really hasn't had that this year. They've really had to rely on guys like Wayne Selden, Joel Embiid, and Andrew Wiggins. And you know, those guys are just figuring things out. And, and so that reliance on underclassmen for Kansas, um, where they really, really have to be the go-to scorers game in and game out, does make for the possibility of Kansas being more inconsistent. Whether that plays out or whether Bill Self's coaching ability allows them to, to keep, keep the wins coming, uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes in, in Big 12 play. But, you know, certainly relying on young but talented players, there, there's always the possibility that they will struggle a little bit. On one last young and talented player, I can't let you go without talking a little bit about Marcus Smart. I haven't watched a ton of him this year, but it's been a little bit dispiriting to me to see that he hasn't become, he hasn't made as big of a jump as I hoped, but he's still a phenomenal talent. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting for me to to see how I feel about Marcus Smart this year because, you know, he has improved his shooting. I mean, his three-point percentage is up, and, and I don't think there's any question that he really brings a sort of intangible to the team. I mean, I think a lot of people talked about Oladipo from uh, Indiana heading into the draft and how the reason Orlando wanted him wasn't so much because of his talent as much as the character he was going to bring in practice and the intensity he was going to bring to the other players. And I think there's no question you get that with Marcus Smart, where he is absolutely you know, going to demand defensive effort from his teammate. You know, if the team has limited front court depth, he's willing to go down there and just fight for every rebound because that's what the team needs in order to win the game. And, and having players who sort of have that leadership is, is certainly a, an important quality. But I also think, I mean, it needs to be said that a lot of other players for Oklahoma State are playing better this year. Phil Forte has really emerged as a three-point threat, and having more versatility around him it is a little disappointing that they aren't quite at the top of the polls because because they do have the talent to be there. I mean, this Oklahoma State team should should be taken seriously as as a Big 12 title contender and as Final Four threat. And LeBron Nash is. I'm very encouraged by how he's developing, at least offensively. That as you as you noted in the piece, like his O rating has improved every year, despite having plenty of talent. And that that's always a good sign if a guy's going to stay. That at least he's getting better, even if getting better is just taking less bad shots. Yeah, I mean, from a college perspective, this is exactly what you want to see, and it can help Oklahoma State, you know, reach that Final Four level. From an NBA draft perspective. I think Nash really thought he was trying out for the draft his first couple of years. You know, he thought, I'm going to be a wing or, or maybe even a shooting guard in the NBA. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to show how versatile my skill set is at six foot seven. And, yes, he is athletic. Yes, he is, you know, sort of a dynamic with the ball. He has, he has some ability. But he, he really is not, you know, you have to project him as a real power forward at the NBA level, and he doesn't have the rebounding or the size to do that. And so I think he, he's one of those cases where, He's focused more on his team, which has been good for Oklahoma State and the college level, but he's also sort of proven that his, his NBA upside probably isn't as much as he thought when he entered, uh, the college, entered college. That's totally fair. I'll leave you on this one. Are there any teams that you expect to, let's say, surprise in a positive way moving forward, teams that have been kind of shaky now that you think are coming together and gonna maybe we'll be talking about a month from now? 
I mean, honestly, uh, the team that I was most uh, feeling that way about was Iowa, and they, they sort of this week, you know, picked up the huge win at Ohio State, um, which, which gave them credibility in many people's eyes. But I, I still <laughs> – Mike Gessel, the sophomore uh, point guard that they have, has been phenomenal at driving into the lane. Roy Devin Marble, uh, the, I mean, Marble's son, he, you know, he played for Iowa back in the day. He's been phenomenal. I – I really, I think Iowa has has a chance to compete for a Big Ten title. Maybe end up one game back in the standings or, or something like that. And you know, just because they had a few close losses to top ten teams early in the season, I don't think you should count them out at all. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Look forward to watching more hoops and talking to a couple weeks down the road. Sounds good. Thanks again to Dan Hanner for coming on. I really appreciate him taking the time. It's always fun to talk college hoops with him. He has such a great knowledge of the sport, and he's been watching it in the time that people like me have paid a little bit more attention to the NBA. You can read him at Real GM, and you can follow him on Twitter at D-A-N-H-A-N-N-E-R. Next up is a guy that I wanted to have on, Jordan Ramirez, who writes for Warriors World, and he was at the epicenter of what is now known as the hashtag full squad movement, and Instead of having me explain it, it's a really interesting little thing that's been going on with this Warriors team, particularly with their great road trip. I figured it'd be great to have him on and just have him explain it from his perspective. And it runs about 12 minutes. It was really fun to have him on. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Danny. So I wanted to have you on. This is more of kind of a national podcast that we end up talking about the Warriors a lot because of where both of us are based. And I wanted to have you on to kind of explain the full squad momentum and kind of how all that started. Okay. This took place after the after the Phoenix game. <laughs> we were, you know, at Oracle Arena. This was the December 27th game. Warriors ended up winning by a, a healthy margin. And as with any NBA game or sports sports game, you know, there's pre-game and post-game press conferences, as you well know. And, uh, you know, went to Jackson's me- uh, media presser in the interview room. Kind of standard procedure there, as with, you know, our most Mark Jackson press conferences. But, you know, we head to the locker room, and Lee is usually the one up against the wall taking questions. He's kind of just the, you know, the, the face of, I don't want to say the face of the Warriors, obviously, but he, you know, if you if you want to interview or if the Warriors want you to interview someone, it's more likely than not going to be Lee. So Lee was up against the wall, and people were asking, a, you know, a variety of questions. And one person asked a question, you know, what about the team's defense? You know, they played pretty well that night against Phoenix's backcourt back when Eric Bledsoe was healthy. And I couldn't remember who asked the question, but he ended up talking about, you know, okay, now we have a, a you know, a full team, a full squad, if you will. And then he kind of stops. And my credential is facing towards him. And I wasn't looking directly at Lee. I was sort of looking the other direction with my handout, recording what he was saying with my phone. And he he says something along the lines of, so what's our record full squad, Jordan, uh, from Warriors World? Warriors World, you got our record here f- with the full squad. And it was uh, it took me by surprise, to say the least. I wasn't looking at him at the time. And then I look up, and <laughs> there's Lee looking in, in my eyes. And, you know, not to get corny here, but that, that definitely did kind of strike me as surprising. I mean, normally you've been in tons of press conferences, so you know. That I mean, obviously it's us doing the doing the questions and them doing the answering. So Lee asking me a question definitely caught me off guard, and I just you know I didn't know the answer. I didn't want to say I don't know. I guess that might have been the the proper response had I been quick uh, you know quick on my toes there. But so I just kind of just stare at him and don't say a thing. And then he looks around and he kind of asked a uh, you know asked hey, anyone else know or no one really knew. So I noticed the CSN cameras were there. 
And this was at the tail end of that media session. So at that time, I didn't think that the cameras were going to be on or even recording that part of the interview. And I get back in the media room, sit down and, you know, on my laptop and I see a bunch of mentions, you know, asking me, hey, was that you that that Lee was was asking? And I'm like, well, how do you know that? And apparently the CSN caught that on camera and, you know, the beauty of, uh, of social media and more specifically Vine in this case, one of our followers recorded it and, you know, put it up as a Vine and, you know, Rashid, who runs the Warriors World account, posted it and <laughs> tons of memes later and, you know, an Instagram video and everything. And it, it definitely blew up that night. Lee got back to me even apologizing for it. And, you know, I at the time I found it pretty embarrassing, you know, when it first happened. Got a good laugh from everyone in there, but you know, at least with me, it was sort of embarrassing, especially for someone that wants to be in this business for a long time. But hey, it's become, uh, I guess, a blessing in disguise. And you know, Lee got back to me that night apologizing, like I said, and he uh, he's tweeted it pretty much after every Warrior game since then. I believe against the uh, the loss against Brooklyn, he didn't tweet anything. But hey, they went on that road trip and they they've been playing well ever since, specifically Lee. So combining everything and all that, you know, Lee being, I guess, the co-captain of the whole movement, the full squad movement, coinciding with him playing well, the team playing well, the amazing road trip. And it really reached its peak after the Miami win, when he literally said, hashtag full squad in an interview with Steph and Jim Barnett. And uh, that that was a flood of tweets. And that's when, I guess, the movement officially arrived. And actually, in the following game against Atlanta, that ended in the Andre Iguodala game winner, CSN actually had the, the hashtag above the uh, little scoring scoring graphic there throughout the game and they actually had a little I want to say 10 to 15 second spot with uh, you know that, that had the clip of Lee saying hashtag full squad with Curry there so that was that was exciting and uh, yeah the movement w- was official since then it's still it's still here with us and Lee is still behind it and you know we just had shirts come out and bazemore has been behind it and I suppose Harrison I didn't watch his uh, his sports he had some sort of uh, you know sports conference with uh, I forget which company today but he apparently said that at the tail end of it so it's become a it's become a thing you know it's become something that I'm not going to say it's it's the next we believe or anything as symbolic as that, but it's definitely you know combining everything that that went into it and all the events that followed. It's it's become a fun, definitely fun for the fans, and it seems like the players are, are latching onto it. Just a fun deal, and it shows really the the power of social media and really what what fun can can come from it. So it's be, it's been a fun two weeks to say the least. And the part of it that I think made it catch fire in the way that it did is that immediately following that, they went on a road trip, which widely is acknowledged to be the best road trip in franchise history, at least the best road trip since they won the title in 75. So it fueled the narrative that this, you know, that this full squad and the other part of this that I find so fascinating is the identity of the full squad, which, as I understand it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's the five primary starters. It doesn't refer to anybody else other than those five. That's correct. And, you know, a lot of a lot of people, including guys on the team, I think Festus even retweeted someone who said, oh, it's not a full squad without Festus. So I, I don't think he he's behind it. And I haven't really asked uh, Jermaine O'Neal about it. He hasn't really been around. But uh, yeah, Lee, even, you know, at the time, Lee was referencing the starting five and a lot of people, you know, in the days following, especially maybe in the days after the, the Miami and Atlanta games were like, well, what about, you know, what, what about Festus? What about Jermaine? These guys aren't here. So it's not, you know, literally a full squad, but for people that understood the origin of it and understood where Lee was coming from and the question at, at how it originated, people know what he meant. And Lee was on 95, seven, the game here in the Bay area, you know, just last week, and Rick Buecher 
actually asked him about it because Bucher has notably not been a fan of the hashtag just because of this very reason. You know, it's, it doesn't include supposedly supposedly doesn't include some of the bench guys that are injured. But Lee was basically saying, yeah, it's become I don't want to say a rallying cry. Maybe maybe that's the correct term, but it's definitely become a saying that you can get behind in terms of okay, whether someone's out or you know since since the hashtag has been known. It, None of the starters haven't played, so that point hasn't come across yet. But it's basically become kind of just a saying that even if someone was hurt or even, you know, when these guys come back, that as a team, you know, as one together, as a full squad, if you will, that we can do great things. And uh, like you said, Danny, you know, following up with, you know, one of the greatest road trips in Warriors history, for sure, they didn't get that that win in Brooklyn to to stamp it, but uh, everything has coincided with it and it's turned into something great. And yeah, it's referencing more, most specifically the the starting five, but it means a whole lot more to to Lee, and every, every, hopefully everyone else understands that. Yeah, and I think the other part of it that's nice is that it brought attention to just how good the team has been when those, particularly those five guys, you can talk about with Harrison with some of the early games when he was out, and that's actually my most interesting part with it. But that the team when they've had their starting five out there, they've been insanely good. And it helps kind of, in some ways, it helps be an avenue, ideally for me, for people who aren't as in tune with this team to understand what their ceiling can be because of how good those five guys have been together. Right. And, you know, just to, I was going to say at some point in this interview, they're 20 and four with, with the full squad. So that goes into, you know, into it for sure. But uh, yeah, th- this this is one of the, Zach Lowe wrote a great piece today about it on Grantland, but this is probably, I would say, with everyone healthy, at least a, a one of the top five starting units in basketball. And the stats, he, you know, you can read that piece. Back that up. Even even Zach Lowe went on to say that they might be the best starting lineup in the league with everyone healthy. And you're exactly right. I mean, with a with a full squad with the starting five, they are a very complete team. Now the problems with the Warriors go go beyond that. You know, you have some turnover problems, and you have the much maligned bench, specifically in that point guard spot. But uh, you know, this is far from a finished product. And you know, the Warriors, as rotations get shorter, come playoff time, they're going to be in great shape, assuming everyone's healthy and assuming they have acquired another backup point guard to to spell Steph when when need be. Because right now he's racking up the minutes, as is Clay actually. So it's uh, it's going to become important for the Warriors to acquire someone, especially come uh, come playoff time in that point guard spot. But yeah, th- this is a very very good team, and they are just lost in the middle of a fantastic Western Conference. And uh, hopefully they uh, you know they they really take advantage of that home heavy schedule coming up, and they can even I can see them finishing as high as third or as low as you know sixth or seventh, just based off the fact that the Western Conference is so good. But we'll see. This is an exciting team, and for people that don't normally watch the Warriors, they're actually better statistically on, on defense than they are on offense, which, which I find fascinating. But uh, yeah, this is a, a really good team. Their starting five is really, really good, and you know we'll, we'll see based on matchups how far they can go in the playoffs. Exactly. And the transition, I I think what the nice thing that Full Squad does is it marks the transition from the Warriors being kind of a niche team like they were last year when they beat the Nuggets and surprised the Spurs for a little bit, was they kind of felt like a novelty, kind of like they were with the We Believe team. It was like, oh, good, it's a plucky team, that's a nice little story. That transition into being a legitimate team and being not a novelty, just being a, a really good basketball team. And full squad actually, to me, part of the reason why I think it's such a fascinating concept is that it helps crystallize that difference that now they're not a team that gimmicks you. They're a team that 
is better defensively than offensively, and they're still really good offensively. Right. You saw it, I mean, shoot, in the San Antonio series uh, last year, that series could have gone a completely different way had the Warriors hung on in that game one. You know, for those that don't remember, the Warriors had that game and ended up losing it on a, on a Ginobili last-second shot there. And, uh, I mean, you can do this with, with every series in every sport, really. Go back and say, what if? But, I mean, once the Warriors beat Denver, I think that's when people thought, okay, you know, this is still definitely a fun team and, you know, maybe a niche team, like you said. But, you know, in that San Antonio series, they proved something. Even when they lost... They, I want to say, cemented themselves as a contender for years to come. And I want to get out and define what a contender is, because there's a difference between a finals contender, a real contender, and let's just say like a Portland or or someone like um, even the Clippers. (laughs) I picked the Clippers to to make it out of the West, so that's not really a uh, a good backing on my pick. But are the Warriors finals contenders? I'm not ready to go there yet, but they have definitely proven with actually starting with their defense that they can compete and go deep in the playoffs now I'm, I'm not ready to say they're finals bound because they still have to get through san antonio and oklahoma city but i mean like like you were saying it starts on the defensive end and if the warriors can limit their turnovers a bit and spell curry fairly soon because those minutes are going to be racking up that they can uh they can do some damage Agreed, and thanks so much for taking the time. Glad to have you on, and I always, I really wanted to have you on because there's nobody better to to explain this to, let's call it the masses, than you. Uh, thanks, Danny. I appreciate it. Thanks to Jordan Ramirez for coming on and explaining full squad to a more national audience. He writes for Warriors World, which you can read at warriorsworld.net, and you can follow him on Twitter at jram underscore 91. Next up is Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. We started talking about the Warriors and the Pelicans and the Wall Dang trade, and then we eventually went into other topics, including some competitive balance questions and also some interesting stuff in terms of how the league handles players. And I really enjoyed the conversation. runs about 43 minutes. Hope you like it. Okay, so thanks for coming on. Uh, no problem. I like being on. I feel like the place to start is whether you feel that this Warriors team, and let's say they have to have a full squad, is a legitimate contender to win a championship this year. Yeah, but I I generally have more of a scope for contention than most do. Uh, When it comes to the Western Conference, I would argue that most teams that make the playoffs are a contender, in in my estimation, especially when you add the variability of the injuries and the injuries to uh, prominent players that can seemingly strike at any point. Yeah, they could do it. I also believe that Portland could do it. A lot of people have said, given this recent Portland swoon, that no, they can't. Their defense is too bad. I don't feel that way at all. I think that they could get on a three-pointer hot streak and actually make it if a few things go their way. So, yes, the Warriors are a contender. So are the Blazers. So are quite a few West teams uh, that aren't just the Thunder and the Spurs. And I think that the Rockets are being underappreciated in that sense, that it's taking them a little longer than I expected to come together, but their ceiling, even within this year, is something that other teams will have a lot of trouble stopping. Matchup-wise, they're an issue. And here's my criticism of the Warriors when it comes to uh, them as a title contender. I can't really look at the field and go, man, the Warriors, as a specific construction, they give X team problems. They give X 
contending team problems. With the Rockets, I can do that. Despite the record not being as great as we thought it would be, I can look and say, hey, the Spurs absolutely do not want to play that Rockets team. The Warriors absolutely do not want to play that Rockets team because they spread the floor, and they also have the ability to guard and shoot a bunch of three-pointers. And since it's high risk, high reward, if the threes go in, you're dead in that playoff series. So, yeah, I, I totally agree. The Rockets are a threat. And some of that with the Warriors, I think, goes on the misconception that this is a, a really an offensive team. I think you and I are in agreement that this team, their success is defined right now and, and determined by their defense. Yeah, Zach Lowe wrote about that today, uh, and this is what we've what we've seen over the season, and maybe it will catch on nationally now, that they're awesome at defense, they're eh at offense, uh, and maybe they're a little bit better at offense than the numbers reflect just because their bench is so bad offensively that it drags everything else down, but that's the truth. It's insanely difficult to have a bad defense when you have Andre Godala and Andrew Bogut on the court. That's just tough to do. We're talking top three at their position defensively, so yeah, that's the basis of this team. You know, but if I'm being honest, and this is very subjective when we talk about the Warriors in contention, something just isn't right about this team. Just something, maybe maybe I'm swayed by how they haven't beaten a legit title contending uh, West team soundly, but I, I don't know. I don't know if I, if I necessarily buy that they're as good as their point differential reflects. I, I, I kind of feel like they might be in for a first round, for losing in the first round or a second round max, Maybe that's just my uh, anti-David Lee bias and thinking that this team could go up another level defensively if they if they went a different direction and how I think they should space the floor and guard better, you know, just like the Rockets space the floor. But I, I, I just feel that way subjectively, and I can't put my finger on it. What I go back to is a game that occurred at Oracle when the Warriors played the Grizzlies. And there aren't many teams who can do what the Grizzlies can do, but basically when it came down to it in the fourth quarter – they just decided, okay, whoever David Lee is guarding, we're getting them the ball and we're beating the Warriors, and the Warriors couldn't reliably stop it, and that's a magnificent defensive team. I cannot remember if they had everybody healthy for that game, but I just got these flashes of saying, oh man, if they ever faced a team that could do this in the playoffs, they would just run it until they died. Yeah, and to be fair to Lee, he's been better defensively this season uh, than in seasons past. He's giving good effort, but the reality is that he's slow laterally, and for his position, he's not long, and that's that's a tough combo to defensively important position, and they have a lot of defensive talent to compensate for what he lacks in that respect. So maybe all the, the egg will be on my face. They'll win the title. David Lee will be finals MVP, and I'll have been the nagging hater in the background. And I, I, I hope that's the case. It would be so cool for this team to win a championship. But I, I just believe at some level you have to get something better defensively from your power forward if your power forward's not also giving you threes and giving you three-point spacing. Could be wrong, but that's how I feel. I had Erwin Sunachan on last week, and he was talking about how he thinks that the two main pieces that could be tweaked in the rotation are Lee, as we've been talking about, and also Harrison Barnes. He thinks, oh, yeah. and I actually disagree with him a little bit, that Harrison is du duplicated by Andre Iguodala. I feel like you can do some stuff with that. But I also feel that he's an asset that could be better used in another way than what he is right now. Oh, definitely. If we're talking about space on the floor, he should come off the bench as a small ball four unless the matchup is wrong. That is such a drop-off when you see that starting line 
lineup uh, to what happens when they sub out Iguodala for Barnes, man, it's just a collapse because, hey, Barnes might have Iguodala's body type, but he's not Iguodala. He can't do a lot of the things Iguodala can do. He can't dribble. He can't pass. These are important basketball things that the Warriors seem to almost be taking for granted when they make that substitution. You need to help Harrison Barnes out. There are two players actually right now where they can't quite create, uh, but they can play decently off other players who can, but yet they're all mashed together in that bench mob unit, and that's Harrison Barnes and Draymond Green. It's better to stagger those minutes and fit them with a creative player uh, rather than just throw them out there and say, hey, find your own offense. And that was also the danger of getting a second point guard who's better off the ball than on the ball. And Tony Douglas has strengths as a player, and there are things there are things that I like about him. But the problem is, as much as I'm somebody who differentiates primary ball handlers from point guards, the fact of the matter is that most primary ball handlers are point guards. So you have to have a very specific skill set on your team if you're going to have a point guard play meaningful minutes who is not a reliable handler. Man, how cool would it be if the Warriors had somebody with that skill set who was also shooting guard slash small forward size? That would be just great, wouldn't it, Wouldn't it, Danny? That would be amazing. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of whether you're implying Jared Jack or Jeremy Lin. I'm saying that Andre Iguodala is that guy, and why isn't he playing more backup point guard? That's true, too. Yeah, I I think that, and that's the other factor, when I was looking, I wrote a piece for Warriors World about the ridiculousness, and Zach talked about this today as well, of Steph's on-court, off-court numbers, and a big portion of that to me is also the way that Mark Jackson has used everybody's minutes. It's that they've basically said, okay, when Steph is off the floor, the cupboard is going to be bare, as opposed to trying to sustain a little bit and weakening, if you want to call it the starting lineup, but the primary lineup. Yes, yes, and I I get what Jackson's doing in that you want that starting lineup to have as much of a punch as is possible, so I understand it. I I have certain issues, and I disagree with certain things Jackson does, but by and large, unlike with the Keith Smart era, I can see the logic in what's happening. I can disagree, but but I get it, and this is one of the issues where I understand what they're doing, I just happen to disagree and believe that they should stagger more. Yeah, I I think that that's a nice way of phrasing it, that it's an understandable logic. It's just that there are other logics that could work to maybe make the situation better. Yeah, exactly. And I I wish we applied that sensibility more often because we don't know everything that's happening behind the scenes and why coaches make the decisions they do. So it would be nice if more frequently instead of going fire the coach or this guy's an idiot or what a dummy we went, hey, you know, I think it should be this way. But this is a point on which reasonable people can disagree, and maybe they have more information. But then again, there are some instances where the coach is just acting crazy. I'm thinking about Don Nelson towards the end of his career. And that, that's a point on which reasonable people can't really disagree. It's just he's being nuts. And yeah, there are those situations where you see where you see really weird things, or you see coaches basically refuse to play players who are very good, and to me those are even more infuriating than something like this, where it's basically more about splitting, not even splitting minutes, but how you apportion them in terms of rotations. And I think that that's one of the smaller things to fix in the larger scope of everything. Yeah, and... Really, it's it, it's hard to win when people are a little bit biased against you or they're not inclined to give you credit. For instance, Draymond Green, I love Draymond Green, you love Draymond Green, um, and a lot of fans were angry that he wasn't getting more minutes and they were ripping Jackson for, for not giving him more minutes, but they neglected taking into account that 
Jackson created Draymond Green. You know, a lot of coaches would have buried him and sent him to the D-League uh, with how he was shooting last season. Jackson believed in him. He stayed with him. He talked him up. And now he's a productive player. So there's sort of an irony in saying he's an idiot for not playing Green enough. I still think he should play more. I still disagree that he plays as little as he does. But it's hard for me to be so incendiary with my criticism, uh, considering that Jackson, his faith... His faith, as we should put it, and we know he's a, he, he's a man of faith, his faith has been rewarded. That's a totally fair point. Moving on, you and I haven't talked about the Luol Dang trade, and I wanted your kind of, you can make it quick or long, but your thoughts on that whole thing. Oh, well, uh, the Dang trade, I, I just believe that Cleveland, I agree with your take on it for the most part. I'm just going to borrow your thoughts on it, where Cleveland essentially... It, it's they're missing their title window or what could uh, could potentially be it and going all in with not enough. And we know they can't get free agents to come there, so you're only going to build through the draft. So it's a fairly simple process of just looking at the roster and saying, well, do they have enough draft picks that uh, could turn into something that contends for a title? Nope. So why are they trying to get out of this great draft when they started off so badly? I don't believe in starting off the year in many situations saying we're going to tank. But if you roll out losing as many games as the Cavs did in a draft this hyped, just stay on the mat. Stay on the canvas. Don't get up. You know, don't be a hero. There's no reason to go all in right now. Kyrie Irving, there's this rush to make sure he doesn't leave, but he doesn't have the ability to leave next season. So what are you doing? There was a lot of conversation in various corners of the sports world about how, oh, this helps them keep Kyrie Irving. What helps them keep Kyrie Irving is that the collective bargaining agreement doesn't allow him to leave. And so the absolute, if you want to call it, best situation for Kyrie if he wanted to leave, I mean, he could take the risk of signing a qualifying offer. And we'll take that off the table since only one guy's ever done it in the current era. And... Otherwise, the basically the the soonest that he could leave is what happened to Kevin Love, and that's still another three years minimum with the team. Yeah, we overestimate the degree of freedom that these guys have, and I, I believe part of that is because we're trying to drum up some drama and kind of, kind of inject a sense of immediacy in seasons where that doesn't exist, and that's what's behind this idea of something has to happen now. But by and large, it doesn't have to happen now. It has to happen over a period of a few years. And haven't the Cavs learned, haven't they been through this before, that adding a bunch of name guys and guys who are past their prime isn't necessarily the way to keep a free agent, that it would have been better to add young guys who could grow into something? That would seem to be the lesson of the LeBron experience. And they learned that lesson for a while, but when it didn't go right with the recent draft picks, they appear to be abandoning it. And to me, if you're going to sell high on this draft, if you just don't feel where it's going, then why didn't they trade their first-round draft pick? Because I'm sure somebody would ludicrously value that pick. And if you're thinking that you're going to go all in, what would have been a really interesting move would have been to, before they did the dang trade, move their first-round pick as it's overvalued and then do the dang trade and basically tank your own pick, but get the full payment for it. Oh, it's brilliant. That's the, the Breaking Bad no half measures. And I agree. If you're going to go full, go full. That would have been so risky and so dirty to go, hey, no protection, and then have this other deal lined up. Uh, surprise. That That would have been a great move, but this team doesn't have that kind of foresight, I believe. So maybe uh, maybe LaRue for uh, future GM of the Cavs, but right now Chris Grant not getting it done. 
the other thing that makes me there are two things that make me sad about the trade but the the one that's been so weird for me in writing about it and being as critical of it as I was for the Cavs is that I really like Waldang and I think a lot of people have interpreted my criticism of it as being criticism of Dang which it isn't at all I think that he's a fabulous player. I think he's a great locker room guy. I've had very limited interactions, but they've been good. And what you see his impact on the floor, the issue is that he just doesn't make sense for this Cavs team. And he's probably, if the best case scenario happens for the Cavs, going to leverage them into paying him way too much money this summer. Yeah, I, I like Deng a lot, although I do laugh about that two-time All-Star distinction. and what they're in. No, he's not. He's not. He's not an all-star. He was never an all-star. Those those are two bad selections that would not have happened if he was playing in Milwaukee. That that happened because he was playing for Chicago. I mean, come on. He's a perimeter player who can't dribble. Let's be real here. I love his defense, and he brings a lot else to the table. But name-wise, he might be a little bit overvalued. At the same time, ironically, he does a lot of the little things that we say get overlooked. So, Hey, I've just got a lot of little dang ambivalence. Would I do a straight-up trade of dang for David Lee, not to get back on that topic again, uh, that works out on the trade machine? Yeah, I probably would. So, on to another team that trying to figure out what the heck they're doing. If you were in charge of the Pelicans, what kind of direction would you go in for the rest of this year? Tank, 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 tank. I mean, my God, they can't make the playoffs realistically, and they have a protected, what is it, a top-five pick? Yeah, I, there's no other option. You have to start losing. You have to start losing now. This is this is a bad situation, and this is the only way you can salvage it. And what a swing to go from missing the playoffs and getting nothing versus missing the playoffs and potentially getting somebody like Andrew Wiggins or Jabari Parker. It's a clear path. I don't know if this management is. This goes back to the short-sightedness and also all-star distinctions that don't matter. Uh, this is the management that, that sold some of the future to get a guy who was a quote-unquote all-star while in just ensuring that he would never be an all-star again because he's in the West, and that distinction means very little in the other conference for Drew Holiday. So I don't necessarily have faith that they'll have the foresight to do so, but they should start losing immediately. And a point on the tanking that makes their situation really fascinating is that when you think of a pick that is top five protected, you think, okay, so if they got to the fifth worst record, they'd be all right. But the way that the lottery works, if they had the fifth most ping pong balls, they would actually have, I worked out the numbers, it'd be a 44.8% chance of not keeping their pick. Because if you're the fifth spot, then all basically you need is for one team from six to 14 to jump you, yeah. and then you're out. So if they need to tank, which I think is a logical, though admittedly gutsy, strategy because of this, if they want a reasonable chance of keeping their pick, they need to get to fourth or worse. Yeah, well, what they have to do, since we all know the NBA is rigged, is place a phone call to Adam Silver, see where they're going to finish in the lottery, and then make their decision based on that. I'm just kidding. Well, and if we're going to talk jokingly about the lottery being rigged, then Toronto should be going as hard as they can to get into the bottom five because the NBA has all the reason in the world to want Andrew Wiggins there. Well, I, I think the NBA has all the reason to want Andrew Wiggins or somebody of that caliber in Los Angeles. As corrupt NBA commissioner, I would make that happen. I would just throw ethics to the wind, map it all out. I mean, my, I would get frostbite on my fingers from how cold those envelopes were. Getting, you know, whether it's Jabari Parker to uh, Chicago or Wiggins to L.A., this league needs some big market success, damn it. 
Yeah, and the, and the challenge with that also is the the issue of that you taught you phrased it nicely earlier when we were talking about the Cavs, which is that in kind of in a way embracing what you are partway through the season. And I think that there there's a big story this year in terms of management of teams embracing where they are like the Bucks. The Bucks wanted to win and then they realized they couldn't and then they started Giannis every game, which is wonderful and I'm thankful for it all the time. And then you see other teams like the Cavs just want to go all in because they just can't stop that pressure. Yes, and we've felt that pressure. We we've been near it winning it, it is an addiction. It's an addiction. We, we, we framed it as a good addiction. Being addicted to winning is good. But in the NBA, it can be a negative addiction. It can leave you worse personally and professionally just as the other kinds of addictions do. Because when you're in this losing season, it is a dreary slog. It is miserable. But when a, when a victory happens, when an, a, you know, a rare win occurs, there's a little rush and a thrill and a celebration, and it makes everything feel okay for that moment. Now, it's not good for you. It's not good for you at all. But in that moment, it feels all right, and it abates the miserable feeling. So it's just so difficult. It's so, so difficult to go against that and embrace the, the slog that ends up making you feel better, the detox, as it were. And I like thinking about it in terms of incentives and veto players, because if you think about it in terms of incentives, so who benefits from a team that isn't very good winning? And usually that's a general manager reducing their chances of being fired, or in the case of Brian Colangelo last year, basically giving himself a chance that he might not be fired. And then ownership in certain situations, that's a good thing, depending on what, what direction they're looking in. I think we're pretty clear from the Cavs. And then the other big question is veto players, because in a lot of situations, like the Cavs situation, if ownership didn't want them to do the dang trade, they could have stopped it. You know, there are lots of ways they could have stopped it. They could have said no. They could have, at worst case scenario, fired the GM. And so if nobody in that in that decision-making tree disagrees, then you run into problems, and you also run into problems the other way, which is what's happening with Thibodeau and the Bulls. Yeah, he's really screwing them. <laughs> he's screwing them, especially when you consider that ownership is cheap, and you're really only going to you're only gonna build through the draft, probably. Uh, you kind of should take this year where Derrick Rose is hurt and out for the season and try to get a great pick, but Thibodeau just isn't wired to do that, so they're going to be self-destructive in victory. And it'll be interesting, beyond interesting, to see if the ownership can and will do anything to change that, because he's such a good coach that I, oh, I, I, was, trying to, I was trying to think of how many pieces you would need to take off the deck, and then the other question I had was, can you trade a coach midseason? Oh man, it would be it would be great. I wish we'd open up that and also I wish that you were allowed to trade out of your own conference. If the East could suddenly use their weak conference as a trade asset, that could be a lot of fun. Or we could go with what I call the Adrian Peterson rule based on the NFL, which is that if you have a really entertaining player or really let's say a good older player who is on a team that is mathematically eliminated from the playoffs, that they should be able to play at least some minutes for a team that's actually relevant. Yes, that would be that would be super cool and because we have a lot of squandered talent in the NBA and it would be great to find it in the right situations and in, in a way that can actually they can actually prompt some optimism and some good feeling as opposed to just making us depressed. I, I, I totally support that. What do you think of this situation the NBA has that 
I, I haven't heard people talking about so much because we're involved with folks who are so hyper-focused on the NBA that I believe they don't see the forest for the trees in terms of the league's popularity sometimes because they don't care about the league's popularity. They just love the league for what it is. The NBA doesn't have a single competent team in the entire Northeast seaboard. Is this an issue for the league? It is an issue for the league in certain senses. I think that the NBA has done an interesting thing, and I mean interesting in this way in a bad way, of focusing in a lot of ways on both individuals and teams. Like They've tried to maintain the glamour franchises, and I think that the problem with doing that is that you have to have glamour franchises that are worth watching. And they have a lot of glamour franchises right now that not only aren't necessarily good, though I think some of them are better than better than the terrible starts they had, but they're not basketball that helps sell the league. You know, when you watch this Lakers team, as much as people like you and I might enjoy it because I like the ridiculousness of Nick Young, it doesn't sell the league. So when they're on TV as much as they are, you don't have people who are general sports fans saying, I need to watch more of this league. That's a great point that it compounds the problem that we have these large markets on television with their crappy product. And I disagree. I hate watching the Lakers. It's it's annoying. Get that bad basketball away from me. I don't need it. I don't need Nick Young dribbling behind his back and launching long twos. I, I I'm not I'm not into just celebrating the novelty of mediocre basketball over an 82 game season. Okay, well a little bit. Part of me is, but moving mo- moving on from that, I, I I find it interesting because there is a tangible East Coast bias in terms of sports coverage, and that's real. And by having no NBA teams in the locus of sports talk and really what fuels what leads PTI and all that, having no competent NBA teams in that whole section of the country, that's an issue. And while the league can't tamper and just say, hey, uh, we'll we'll make you good, we'll make you bad, this is partially a result of how they're trying to hamper and hinder the larger markets. Oklahoma City is a great team. San Antonio, a great story. But just like in The Wire where they talk about you're dead where it doesn't matter or dead in the wrong zip code, uh, it's like great where it doesn't matter, great in the wrong zip code. If these teams existed in, in that northeast seaboard, it would be fantastic for the league. So it's intriguing to me that there's such a dearth of uh, great NBA teams in the area of the country where most people live, and I wonder if that really sparks out. Oh, winter can't be spark if it starts a winter for the NBA and its popularity. The, it very well could, and the other factor in that, which is if what you think about in terms of all the networks that air basketball, is that you want to have teams in each time zone that draw interest because that is the way that you can reliably do television. You know, you want to have ideally you want to have strong teams on the East Coast and the West Coast because with the length of a basketball game, you can do those in one night. And so if you have teams on both coasts that are sustaining interest for television ratings, that's a much better thing. And the biggest problem with that, actually, I always tie it to ownership, and I don't know how you fix that. If, you know, if the Knicks had a better owner, they would be maybe not unstoppable, but they could go on a run that was more similar to what the Lakers have done in a league where New York has a ton of cachet. I think New York has more cachet in basketball than any of the other three major American professional sports leagues or North American professional sports leagues. Yeah, the big problem is nepotism, and I don't know how you solve that. That's You look at the uh, situation with the handover of ownership 
uh, with the bus is what has bus the younger accomplished in his life besides getting this team donated to him i don't know <laughs> i mean he's he, well i i do know to a certain extent he's not that accomplished a man and same with dolan and so you have the situation where you can't really prevent owners from passing the team onto their sons but they're going to ruin the teams in many cases and that's that's an issue and it's symbolic of a bigger issue in America where if you look at our political establishment, nepotism, it's rife with nepotism. Even for popularly elected leaders, so much of Congress is comprised of sons, daughters, and brothers of former senators and former uh, House reps. And it's it's become a bit of an American problem, and we see it reflected in, in our sports leagues. One small way to perhaps fix the northeastern seaboard issue might just be tweaking the lottery a bit because as kurt harris astutely pointed out the situation where if you miss the playoffs you miss out on the lottery it perpetuates the the divide between east and west teams because you could be a pretty good west team and miss the playoffs and you're thrown into the lottery mix but you could be an awful east team that's in need of more talent but you could make the playoffs and then you don't get a chance at the lottery pick so perhaps addressing that issue would help the situation somewhat. That's a fascinating point. And then the other one that they would never, ever do would be to have some sort of clause in ownership agreements that if a team sustained poor, and I don't know how they would do this, poor records or whatever, that if they did it for a certain length of time, then the team would be would be open for a resale. I just wish there was more incentives for players to move around because I believe that creates interest in the league. I have so many criticisms of Stern. One of them is this notion that, oh man, they just need players to stay with the same team for so long. That's great and it's sweet when it happens. I don't think it's that important in this day and age that's so, so 24-7 uh, news cycle and instant stimuli. We love the trade talk. We love the potential of a player being able to move from one team to another. And if we allow players to go to the teams they want, that will inevitably help those big markets, I believe. So ending those restrictions would, would help the popularity of the sport. When I hear people counter-argue, well, then the big stars would never want to sign in the small markets, I think. And? <laughs> I don't care. I don't care about I don't care about Cleveland. I don't care about Milwaukee. Now I know that they have owners of these teams that do, but for the overall health of the sport, it's awful when big stars end up in those cities and it's great when they don't. In terms of player movement, I think that there there is a logic there in terms of interest and everything. I, I, I worry a little bit just in terms of competitive balance because I run a lot of, in my head, a lot of things because people compare it to the NFL, and I think that's a poor comparison because football, for a million reasons, is a different sport than basketball. But I do think that the most important factor with that is in terms of, let's say, in, in arena attendance, that as well as you promote the league, there will always be haves and have-nots. And if you have basically no hope that your team is going to be good – then you can't sustain the team there. And so then you can make the argument that if you can't sustain a team in a city, then the team, see, the, the city should not have a matters. team. I don't think hope matters. This is where I disagree with the league. Hope matters in the NFL where the season's short enough that you can stay interested for, I don't know, a third of it, and you can – still some random stuff can happen. It's random enough that you can convince yourself with five games to go if you're a Browns fan that maybe they can make the playoffs if some things fall into order. In the case of the NBA, once hell, once a fifth of the season passes, you know if your team sucks. 
that's made clear to you and you know you can tune out. So I'm not sure what the value of hope is really. I guess it could be okay if they shorten the season, but they seem unwilling to do that. So a lot of it just seems like a justification for continuing to do things the way they've done them because risks seem scary. And I, I, I'm just not I'm not with that. But the biggest problem, the overarching problem with the NBA is that the owners themselves, there isn't enough of incentive for them individually to really care about how the league does as an aggregate force. And that's another issue that I'm not sure how they fix in the future. On a different note, do you feel like the U.S. can sustain having the second best basketball league in the world be also being in the United States? That's a great question. Second best basketball league in the world. Are you referring to the NCAAs? I'm referring to whatever you think it can be. Basically, can the U.S. financially or whatever sustain a second league that is better than, let's say, I think the ACB is probably the second best league in the world right now. Mm -hmm. Can the United States sustain that? I've been struggling with this for the last week. I believe they can, but it would take it would take some factors. One of them is that, well, this is what I always wanted the NBA to do. I've never bought into this no, this notion that they have a free farm system. No, the hell they don't. A free farm system does not air their games when your games are on. They're not arguably more popular than your sport is. This is just getting jacked. This is just getting played for a sucker by the NCAA. It is not a free farm system. If you're a business, you should try to kill your rival competing business, and that is what the that, that is what the NBA should do to the NCAA. They should look at whatever the top 100 rankings are. Maybe have an impartial scouting service do it. Go, these are the top recruits, and then offer a scaled stipend to these kids immediately, just off the bat, that makes them ineligible for NCAA play, and pay them perhaps more according to the scale to play in the D League. By doing this and clearing out, I don't know, maybe the top 200 recruits, I'm not sure how much money that would take, maybe be worth the value of two or three Kobe contracts, but if the owners agreed to do that, they could effectively kill college basketball in America and perhaps create a league that is better than uh, the best Euro leagues, just comprised of younger up-and-coming players who are developing. So if they went that route, I could see it happening. And the other thing on that, and you and I have talked about this a little bit before, and I've been hearing a little bit on it recently, is I don't know where this concept that continues to persist that colleges develop players better than the pros do came from. Like Marcus Smart, I, obviously I'm never going to knock a guy's decision to stay in school. If he wants to stay in school, well, more power to not, him. N with, with, with Smart, when you're getting paid under the table by T. Boone Pickens, I mean, you can't knock that. I'm just kidding. Don't sue me, please. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, but but it's just this idea that well, I think in certain circumstances that could be true, it isn't an absolute either way, and I think we're seeing that in a really interesting way with Giannis and that he's this super young I would say, I think you can make an argument that he is the most raw player that has come into the league since that I can remember and that while he has plenty of talent but just the fact that he had played against basically zero competition in his basketball life and it seems like it's working out all right I mean we'll have to see what it, what it does in his overall game but in the pros you have you can have people and you can pay people whose job it is to develop those people. I think to go to college football that you think about somebody like Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer's job is to win college football games. His job is not to develop NFL players. His job is not to cultivate and maximize his talent in terms of their the arc of their career. His job is to put the best team on the on the field. And so if you think about it from a structural perspective, 
he's doing what he's paid to do. And it's hard to argue that they are so much better at doing something that is not their job than people who can make that their job. Oh, yeah, it's insane. And at least with Urban Meyer, the rules, for the most part, resemble the NFL rules. With college basketball and the NBA, it's different. It's it's a different sport. The rules are totally different. There's less space on the floor. The three-point line is closer, and there's no overarching body of refing, so there's no agreed-upon way to do things. So teams just clutch and grab each other, hoping that the refs don't call it. So it's just a messy, a messy, messy muck for developing into an NBA player. And uh, a lot of the people saying he should stay a year, he should stay a year. Well, it sounds a little bit like the Saturday Night Live, more cowbell, that's the solution to everything. But just to see the, the irony on its face when these guys come in, these hyped prospects, and they, they come into Kansas and Wiggins doesn't play the way you thought Wiggins would in this terrible uh, Kansas offense, and then the cry is he should stay another year and develop well he's already worse than what you thought he would be going into this system why do you think that more of it's the solution it doesn't make any sense to me the only data we have on this says that the less college ball you play the better you could counter with well you know that's because it self-selects and if you're younger you're more inclined to go into the nba and and be better but you have to concede the people who believe in college as development have to concede that there isn't an iota of data that supports their case at this chunk and maybe when that happens, maybe when there's a study that says college basketball actually develops players or develops big men better, I'll listen, but it hasn't occurred yet, so I'll just go with the basic intuition of it is better if you're a professional to be in the professional league with people paid to develop you while you're getting paid to develop than it is to play a compulsory year of college ball that you don't actually want to be doing just because it's the best showcase for your talents. And if you're looking more anecdotally at which players have the best all-around game, I think you're looking, like, to me, the best all-around center in the league in terms of skill level is Marcus Gasol. Marcus Gasol didn't go to college in the U.S. Marcus Gasol was trained as a basketball player since he was really young. I don't remember exactly how young, but really young. And, well, that... and, and, the, other, and the other best center um, that speaks to this mentality a little bit is, is Dwight Howard, who didn't have any college, and I keep hearing with him, oh, he should have stayed some years in college, if only he had some college to develop. That's how this myth persists, because it becomes... It, it, the, the people who believe in it just believe it would have worked out and project what they thought it would accomplish rather than looking at Dwight and going, well, he never would have really had a fluid shot. He never would have had a, a great 20-footer. Instead, they go, since they never have seen that reality, they've never played out that scenario of putting him in that college and seeing him come out looking you know, the way probably Dwight Howard would look anyway – so they just project this sense of what would have happened and convince themselves that college would have worked. Well, and of course, if you know that it's better for a player to develop when they can only play a limited amount of time, both structured by NCAA rules and by the fact that they have other things that they need to maintain, than if their job is to get better at basketball. Obviously, that's going to lead to a player becoming a better all-around basketball player when they have less time and less ability to do so. I should, I should add, too, that there's this notion that too much money too soon corrupts the player. And maybe that's happened with a few players, but the problem is that these players are worth value. They have value, so they just get paid in black market terms. We see all these sleazy recruiting stories where they get women thrown at them or they get special benefits. There's a way that these guys 
do get compensated uh, that's not money, and that doesn't necessarily make it a wholesome endeavor. So I just also wanted to make that point. Uh, I, I, I believe that the sense of uh, an innocence maintained is partially what fuels the myth of college basketball is helpful, and we should be doing our best to shatter that. It's crazy to me that as we've come to consensus, near consensus, on how corrupt um, and awful the NCAA is, the notion still remains that these players would be better for it. And there are two other things that I think relate to that. One is that if you're worried about players getting kind of swindled out a lot of their money, then maybe part of the solution is actually paying them a fair market value when they come into the league and not waiting for so many guys to wash out by their fourth year for them to actually make a market wage. And second of all, if the league is really concerned about that, and I believe they should be, then they should invest, I don't think it would be a ton of money, in mandatory financial stuff that runs through a player's entire NBA career. I'm not saying make it so that they manage people's money, but give them free consultations that they can use and have a service, let's say, like I believe the NFL has in terms of a car service, where if you're unable to drive for whatever reason, they will come and pick you up. And if the players underutilize it, then that's their own thing. But at least you give them this tool and you put some pressure on them to use it. And then at least then you have a clear conscience. Yeah, they could they could form something like that. Uh, it may be a split of half will be put in the fund, half will be paid out to you. You can elect to choose the system or you can elect to get all of it. They, there are various ways that they can ensure that players handle their money better, and I believe that more strides have been made on that front. Also, players are probably better with their money nowadays than they were just because the league is drawing from a different demographic. It's been one of the more underreported stories. The New York Times had a piece on it, but... A lot of the people who come into the NBA these days are from suburban backgrounds, from middle to upper class backgrounds. So they have a firmer footing um, and a, a firmer sense of how money gets used. And there's less pressure, perhaps, to also give money to friends. And so uh, it, that does seem to be improving over what it's been like in the past. That's a really good point. And the other one to me is that you reach various levels of thresholds in terms of the players that you surround yourself with. So if you think of that as, you know, who you're around, the more positive examples you have in terms of using your money judiciously and all that kind of stuff, the more you're going to do it. And so the more people that you have, what, what, whether that's from background or whether it be that they, you know, that they know somebody in the league or whether it be that they're just people who are responsible with their money, you don't have to, you can get that way from anywhere. To the, that the higher the percentage of people that do that, and also to a point, the greater the incentive, as teams understand now that players are investments, to make sure that players don't sabotage themselves, the less bad examples, the better overall players will be because they'll be dragged into that stuff less frequently. Yeah, your your peers set your sense of what's normal. This is why I've always been sympathetic to the cheating athlete, to the infidelities, because I don't think you should cheat on your wife. I don't think that's a great thing to do, but it's a different situation if you're a roadbound millionaire and all your friends are doing that. It shifts your morality. It shifts your sense of what's wrong. It's an odd example to compare to the money, but it's just the first that popped into my mind where your your peers set your social norms. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't want to encourage anything of of that nature, but I do well, think I do. that there's I just a... my mind. Everybody cheat. <laughs> Uh, but I do think I do think that I do think that that in in pretty much all circumstances, well, let's just say most, having a social scorn on a behavior that let's say that the aggregate thinks is a bad thing 
can work very effectively as a motivator to yes. do the opposite. Yes. And without that negative connotation, and I think if you want to go back to politics, you can see the same thing in terms of not having the scorn of going into something like lobbying or going straight from public service work to for-profit work, is that once the only natural impediment to what we want to call a societal negative behavior is removed, then there's a group of people that that was stopping from doing what they were doing. Yeah, and shunning, so once you re- once you remove the impediment, shunning can, is a social good as long as we're shunning the right things. As long as there's stigma against the right things, it helps accomplish a lot. And I, I think that's a great example with the politics that our society would probably be healthier if there was more scorn for people pursuing their ends that way. So to end it on a more on a more basketball basketball note. Do you think that both of the New York City teams are going to make the playoffs? You know, I I think that the Knicks are. I know they're in right now, and they have all the incentive to make it, but I don't believe in the Nets just because I don't believe they're going to get Darren Williams back as Darren Williams because of the Spoon Spurs situation that he did not handle over the offseason, and he keeps getting hurt, and they have Brooke Lopez out for the year, so... I, I, I'm wary. I, I They look so great recently, and they can do some things, but it's just my sense that the Nets don't have enough guys, even if they're so motivated to make it. The Knicks have enough guys, so I'd go Knicks yes, Nets no, even though the Nets are surging. How funny would it be if the Bulls make the playoffs and the Nets don't? It's very possible, and it would be funny. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, hope to talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks for having me, Danny. Thanks again to Ethan Sherwood-Strauss for coming on. You can read him at ESPN, and you can follow him on Twitter at Sherwood-Strauss. That's S-H-E-R-W-O-O-D-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. And I'd also like to thank our previous guest, Dan Hanner of Real GM, who you can follow at D-A-N-H-A-N-N-E-R. And Jordan Ramirez of Warriors World, who you can follow on Twitter at J-R-A-M underscore the number nine, the number one. It's great to have all of them on. Also, a little addendum, since we recorded all this on Monday and Tuesday, after that point was the trade with the Warriors, because there was a lot of Warriors talk, and my opinion on that, it's on the, I wrote the Real GM grading the deal piece, generally I thought it was a logical move, considering the fact that Mark Jackson was not playing Iguodala or Curry, kind of with the second unit in that sense, so they didn't have any continuity and they didn't have a primary ball handler. Crawford is better than what they had given those restraints and in terms of the Celtics I think they sold a little bit low on Crawford and Marshawn Brooks and for the Heat they gave up a pick that's a little risky but they saved some money and and they got a guy in Tony Douglas that if they keep him makes some sense for them on to future episodes I definitely am going to do an episode or maybe two on revamping the lottery system and potentially revamping the playoff system. I'm recruiting guests right now. It's going to be another one like the year in review where it's smaller hits and more people because I want as many ideas as possible. If there are people that you want on, you can tweet me at Danny LaRue, D-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, or you can email me daniel.laroux at realgm.com and you can reach out to the guests too I have a nice group of people and I'm trying to get more trying to get it to a critical mass and release it in early February so it can be out before the all-star game but still have enough juice to get it where it needs to go thanks again to my guests thank you for listening and make it a great day
When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love a sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. 